you're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Come on now, I'm deaf. Y'all got to say it back. Let's go. We only get to say this one time a year, you know. We get like four or five weeks to say this good news, Merry Christmas. So I like to hear it. Um, For those of you that don't know me, uh, my name is Chase Woodhouse. Uh, I am a pastoral resident uh, here at Sergeant Montrose. And, you know, uh, Sergeant Montrose has been my church home for two years now. And uh, in the new year, we'll actually be um, leaving Sergeant Montrose to go help replant and rebuild Sergeant Galleria. Uh, We knew this was going to be something that was going to happen, as I thought we would be planting a church, Um, but the Lord had different plans, and so uh, we'll be shifting over in the new year um, to go and to rebuild Sojourn Galleria. Uh, So I will get to preach one more time on January 1st, but I know that some of you won't be there, either because you're traveling or because you stayed up way too late. And uh, I hope this year I'll stay up way too late as well. Haven't done it in like six years, but, um, but I have one more chance to preach. But just wanted to say how much we love this church. We love being a part of this church family. Uh, we still will be, in a way, a part of the Sojourn family. Um, but it's just an honor to be uh, a part of this wonderful church family and to have the honor this morning of, of continuing on in our Advent series. So uh, we're going to continue on in the Gospel of Luke. Um, as, as I told you all last week, I said you all, y'all, um, Advent, Christmas, is my favorite time of the year, and I like it for many reasons. Um, I shared that with you last week, Um, but the season of Advent can be a time where we stop and reflect, where we allow ourselves to stop and reflect on the brokenness, the brokenness in this world and the brokenness, worse yet, in our hearts. We have the opportunity to pause and simply reflect on the reality that this world is broken, that sin rages, that wars come, that plagues come, that jobs get lost on and on. We've got homes burned down. This world is broken. And then worse yet, there's a brokenness in us. We're sinners. We rebel against the Lord daily. We say to his word, no thanks. This is the nature of our heart, and Advent is a season where we can stop and reflect on these things because Advent is also the season of hope. The reality of our brokenness in the broken world is met by God with hope. It's not met with judgment. It's not met with rejection. It's not met with aloofness. It's met with hope. And so Advent is a special time where we can allow ourselves to feel these things. And when we feel the weight of the brokenness of this world, when we feel the weight of our sin, we can taste anew the hope and joy that Christ has been born. Part of the reason Advent is my favorite season is each year that I have lived, as I stop and reflect on who I am, I constantly continue to see I am far worse off than I thought I was. I am far worse off than I ever thought I was. My sin is greater than I ever imagined, and it never ceases to surprise me, and yet it does surprise me each year. As I stop and reflect, man, I am truly, truly broken. And yet, I am truly, deeply loved, and God has come and delivered hope to us. 
And this morning, this text is the dawn of hope. We get to see hope be prophesied about. We need hope. Uh, There's a Reformed theologian named uh, Louis B. Smeads that says this, Hope is to our spirits what oxygen is to our lungs. Lose hope and you die. They may not bury you for a while, but without hope you're dead inside. We are people that are constantly searching for hope, and in the United States you can find hope everywhere. You can find hope in the idea that you're going to have a better job one day, more financial security, more authority, more power. You may be able to stop working for someone else and get to work on your own. Or better yet, maybe you get to work at home and never get to go into the office. That's kind of a new hope in this day and age, isn't it? I don't get to have to go into the office anymore. Or maybe you're hoping for a spouse. Maybe you're hoping in the idea that marriage is going to be everything that you've ever dreamed for and you will be totally fulfilled in every single way. Maybe you're hoping for a child. The joy of holding a child that is your own and looking at this baby and experiencing love that you haven't experienced before. Maybe you're hoping in good health. You work out, you eat all the right things, you do everything you can in order to prevent death. And the reality is, if these are our only hopes, it will fail us every time. Your spouse, as wonderful as he or she is, will fail you. Your job could not be there. Your financial security that you love to have could be gone the drop of a dime. On and on it could go. Hope is something that is necessary for us, and yet we often put our hope in the wrong things. But this morning, this text, we see the hope of God, the hope that is a living hope, an eternal hope, a hope that cannot be destroyed, a hope that regardless of what you are going through, it will endure, and it will give you He, in actuality, will give you all that you need in order to get through. So with that, let's dive into this text. It's a a long text, and I'm going to skip over some parts because of its length. But what I want us to walk away from at the end of this sermon is is a a reflection upon and a renewed mind to the hope that God has given us. That's That's the goal for today. So with that, let's look. First, we see two main characters at the beginning, Zechariah and Elizabeth, right? Here's what you need to understand about Zechariah and Elizabeth. They are wonderful people. They love the Lord their God. They are faithful. Zechariah is a priest. He is in the tribe of Levi. Only the, people in the, only the men in the tribe of Levi were allowed to become priests. When God put his people into the promised land. All the tribes got a piece of that land except for Levi. Levi was allowed to be the priestly tribe. They were not given land, but instead the Lord was their portion. And Zechariah was one of the Levites that had chosen to become trained in the role of becoming a priest. And Elizabeth, his wife, was also in the tribe of Levi. And in the text, in verse 6, you see it says, And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. When you read this, you can think, okay, maybe they were really awesome. Maybe they were perfect. Because it says they were walking blameless before the Lord. And yet, if you continue reading on, you'll see that Zechariah responds to this prophecy about a baby with disbelief. 
So it's not that they're perfect. It's not that they're totally blameless. What it is, is it's, it's the Scripture's way of saying that these people love the Lord and they walk with him. They seek to obey him. We see it also in Noah. Noah was called blameless, and then after the flood, what does he do? He gets drunk. He sins. So when the scriptures say this, it's not trying to say that they're perfect, but rather these are people that love the Lord. And here's why Luke includes this in this text. The next verse says this, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. And even in verse 25, Elizabeth says, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. This is a clue as to why they're called blameless. They're called blameless because in this culture, in this time, to not have a child was a sign that you were a disobedient sinner, that God's anger and judgment was upon you. The people in this time period could not fathom not having a child and, and it not being a punishment. But Luke here is writing this to help us to see, no, 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 this isn't a punishment that's happening here, but rather this is just what is. Zechariah and Elizabeth were unable to have a child. And, and Zechariah was serving, so he was at the temple, he was serving, and he was chosen by Lot to get to go into the actual building to offer up incense. This was not something that happens to all the priests. This was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to get to go into the temple and to offer up incense to the Lord. It's a special opportunity for Zechariah. And so Zechariah goes into the temple and begins to offer up incense, and an angel comes to him. He tells him to not be afraid, and, and then I want you to read with me, starting in verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the Lord." A people prepared. John goes in, offers up the incense, and an angel appears. The angel essentially tells him, you're going to have a child. And I want to stop real quick before we get into the prophecies about who John would be, because those are very important for us this morning. But I want you to read again at the beginning of verse 14 when it says, and you will have joy and gladness. John's birth serves a far greater purpose than simply giving Elizabeth and John a child. Excuse me, Elizabeth and Zechariah. I get them mixed up all the time. John's birth is so much more, and yet God, who is orchestrating a, a beautiful plan of redemption for all of humanity, and John is the beginning of this, this the final step, really, of the beginning of this great plan of redemption, God still looks upon Zechariah and Elizabeth and sees their pain and gives them a child for their joy and gladness. I think this is something for us to stop and think about. Sometimes, if you're like me, we think about God and we think about God as the one who is running the cosmos, right? He's orchestrating everything. He is up there holding the planets where they are, just in control of all things. And if we are wrongly thinking to ourselves, 
he does not care about me. This is one of the many texts in Scripture that would contradict that idea. Even though he is orchestrating a massive plan of redemption and that John is the final prophet for this plan, he still cares enough about Zechariah and Elizabeth that he's going to come to them and say, this child will be joy and gladness for you. So this morning, if you think, when you read this text and you think about what God is doing on the cosmos, don't let it, don't let your mind wander and begin to think, man, maybe God doesn't care about me where I am right now. May this small little reminder remind you that he does care about where you are right this minute. But then we see who John was going to be. His name shall be called John, and he will be great before the Lord. And he will turn the many children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and to summarize, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. John's role was to be the forerunner, was to be the final herald before the hope of God would come. He was going to be the one who had long been prophesied to prepare the way of the Lord before the Lord comes. And we see this in a couple prophecies. Turn with me, if you have your Bible, if you want to, to Isaiah chapter 40. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. It says this, a voice cries in the wilderness, excuse me, a voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice would cry out in the wilderness, Basically, get ready. He was going to make everything ready for the Lord to come and make it possible for the people to easily accept that the Lord was coming. And you look at Malachi, uh, the last uh, prophet in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And in Malachi verses 4 through 5, excuse me, chapter 4, verse 5 says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. John is the fulfillment of these prophecies. He was the one coming to prepare the way for the Lord. He was coming to prepare the people's hearts for the Lord. He was coming in the power and spirit of Elijah and telling, as we know, we keep reading, the people to repent. But what I want us to focus on for just a second is this. John is a perfect representation of all of the Old Testament. Maybe not perfect, but he is a great representation of all the Old Testament. Jesus often summarizes all the Old Testament with this phrase, the law and the prophets. John, born in the family of Levi, had the ability to become a priest should he want to. We have no evidence that he was trained to become a priest, but he was able to be a priest. But he was given the role of a prophet. So here we see 
the priest who mediates between God and man about the law of God, and we see John as a prophet. What this is, is a representation of all the Old Testament. And what does all the Old Testament point us to? What is the purpose of everything in the Old Testament? It is to point us to Jesus. How do we know that? Because at the end of the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, Jesus is on the road to Emmaus with his disciples, and he tells them this. I wish I had that memorized. I should have, but I'll have to turn there. Luke 24, 27, says this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All throughout the law, all throughout the prophets, all of it was pointing to Jesus. John is a representation of that reality. God was sending someone to be the fulfillment of everything that he had done thus far. And that someone was Jesus. So let's continue on. Um, Zechariah, obviously, he responds in disbelief. He doesn't believe that this is actually going to happen. And so the angel silences him for nine months. Elizabeth becomes pregnant, and we continue on. In the sixth month, Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. And we know he comes to Mary, and he says to her, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now again, I want to stop and talk about that phrase for just a second, because that really has troubled Mary. Why would that trouble Mary? Why was it weird that the angel would call her a favored one and that God was with her? My assumption is this. Mary was a young girl from a town called Nazareth. If you remember in the New Testament, it's said of Jesus. When they say Jesus of Nazareth, they say, can anything good come from Nazareth? It's not a city known for producing great people. But Mary is from Nazareth, and she is a woman. In this culture, not due to the scripture, but into the culture, a woman is less than a man. So she likely has this idea that she is not equal to man. And so in this setting where Mary is a young woman in a town that is not known for anything and just is a simple, faithful woman, an angel comes to her and tells her that she is favored by God and that the Lord is with her. My assumption is that Mary has a very humble heart and is surprised that God would favor her, but so it is in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, God favors those not who are grand in their religiosity, not who those who understand all the deep workings of Scripture and have studied PhDs and have become these wonderful people, it's not that those are a negative thing, but rather what truly matters is the heart. Mary had a submissive heart before the Lord and believed the Lord. And we see that at the end of this interaction with the angel. She loves the Lord and believes him and submits to whatever he's doing. Therefore, she is favored. God has favored her. He is with her. And so I think Mary is shocked by this reality. And then we see that Mary is going to have a baby. She is going to conceive, though she has not slept with a man. And I want to read together this morning, because this is the focal point of all of these verses. 
really, of all the scripture. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. This is the hope of humanity. This is the goal of everything that God has been doing since the fall. Since you and I and Adam and Eve rebelled against God, this is what he has been working for. This is the point where everything comes to fruition. A baby has been born, and this baby will be given a kingdom. And this baby, just like John, he will be great. But unlike John, he won't be a prophet only. He will be called Son of the Most High. He will truly be the Son of God. And as we see later in Scripture, what we will find out is that he truly is God incarnate. God has come down to his people to begin the process of redeeming them and to begin the process of inaugurating a kingdom. It says, He will be great. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. How is it that a kingdom is the hope of humanity? How is it that a king is the hope for us this morning? How is it that that is our one and only hope in this life? I want to briefly, yet not briefly, explore that. Starting with Isaiah chapter 9. Go all the way back to Isaiah. Go ahead and turn there. It's just it's too good to not read it. Isaiah chapter 9, <clears throat> starting in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I want to stop there. The reason why this baby is the hope of God is who he is. He is the wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God. He is the everlasting father and he is the prince of peace. He is the perfect king over all. The perfection of this king is seen in the qualification for his ruling. He is the wonderful counselor. That means he is wonderful in wisdom. He points us to the truth only. He is perfect in his wisdom. The qualification, the perfection of this king is seen in his person and power. He is the mighty God, the creator of all things. He can speak and it comes into existence. The perfection of this king is seen in his relationship to his subjects. He is an everlasting father to those who are his. And the perfection of this king is seen in the society his rule creates. 
He is the prince of peace. And if you continue on in verse 7, it says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. This king, this baby, this child is so full of wisdom and is the creator and sustainer of all things. And to those who believe in him, to those who he calls his own, he is a father to them, an everlasting father, a good father. And of the increase of his government, what his government produces is only peace, is only righteousness. The hope of humanity is found in this baby because of who he is. If you or I lack wisdom, lack direction, don't understand the truth, we can go to this baby who later rises from the dead and grows up. He's not still a baby. We can go to Jesus. If we doubt that God can come through, we can run to Jesus because he is God. If we doubt that he loves us, we can look at this text and be reminded that he is the everlasting father. And like Jesus says, earthly fathers, we give, good, we give bread to our children who ask of us. Not snakes. How much more so for our heavenly father? And we can know that his rule and reign creates peace. This is who this baby will grow up to be. This is who he is right now. He is our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting father, and our prince of peace. And he is with us who are in Christ right now. But I want to also talk about what does his kingdom produce Keep reading, verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice, with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This kingdom is going to be filled with justice and righteousness. It's not going to be a kingdom like this world that often comes through power. This will be a kingdom that comes through justice and righteousness. In Psalm 45, 3 through 6, if I could summarize what the kingdom will be and what it will produce, we see that the Lord himself will ride out to defend the cause of the meek. Truth and righteousness. He is an avenger of those who have experienced injustice. He goes out to defend the cause of the meek to defend the cause of truth, to defend the cause of righteousness. And in Psalm 68, verses 5 through 6, he will be a father to the fatherless, a defender of the widows. He would set the lonely into families. He will lead the prisoners out with singing. This is what this king does. He becomes a father to those who have no father. He is the defender of the widows, or really a defender of the powerless. He would set the lonely into families. And he will lead the prisoners out with singing. In Isaiah chapter 11, we see that the Messiah will restore the land. The lion will lay down with the lamb. A child will play over the den of a cobra. There shall be no more pain or death in the kingdom of the Messiah. In Ezekiel 11, the people of the kingdom will be given a new heart and a new spirit and will be restored to their God. In the passage in Jeremiah, it talks about that there will come one day where the Lord will forgive all the sins of the people. 
excuse me, let me rephrase that. The Lord will forgive the sins of his people in one day. Jeremiah prophesies that one single day will produce the forgiveness of sins. All of these things and more come through the birth of this baby and are fully made available to you and I when this baby grows up and he doesn't come conquering. He doesn't invade the Roman Empire and take over. But the way that he makes this kingdom fully available for you and I this morning doesn't come through conquering, it comes through death. When Jesus dies on the cross and then three days later rises from the dead, the kingdom of God is made fully available to those who would believe, to those who would repent, to those who say to this king, I want you ruling over my life. I want everything that you have and you are, and I want to, to die to myself and place my faith in you. This is the hope of God. This is what God has come to do. He has come to redeem all things. He has come to make a new kingdom. And get this, the kingdom has been increasing. I said this before in times I've been able to preach here. We're in Houston, worshiping Jesus. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. It has reached Houston, and it is continuing to go forth. The kingdom of God is expanding. God has come to make us his and to invite us into his kingdom. And one day, there will come a time where all who are in Christ will be gathered up with him. And we will fully experience the kingdom of God. Right now we get taste. Right now we get glimmers. Right now we know that God is with us. Right now we know that if we are lonely, especially in this Christmas season, and we don't have family to go home to, if you are in Christ, God has placed you into the family of God. You have family here. If you are looking for hope in your situation, you can know that God is the wonderful counselor who can give you the right way to go. And he is the mighty God and he can come through and provide exactly what you need in this situation. And we know that one day, when all of this is over, whether we die or whether the Lord Jesus comes back, all will be made right. The hope of humanity has come. For those of us in Christ, Remember this. Remind yourself of it daily. This week has continued to be a struggle for me in reminding myself daily of these realities. It is so hard in life to not get too focused on your circumstances, to not get weighed down by them, to not forget who God is. We need this daily reminder that this child who was born for us, has inaugurated a kingdom and has invited us into it, and it will continue to grow, and it only gets better. And for those of you who are not a believer, for those of you who are here this morning, listening to this, kind of checking out Christianity, I'm not sure how I feel about this, first, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. And second, I want you to become like Mary. Here's what I mean by that. After Mary hears this prophecy about what the baby would do, she responds with faith. She says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. 
If you respond to this message that the king has come and that his kingdom is inaugurated now and that he desires to fully redeem you from your sins, if you respond in faith, the Lord Jesus, specifically his Holy Spirit, comes to dwell in you. Not in your womb. That was for Mary. But he comes to dwell in you. All you have to do is respond in faith. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, you're hearing this, and you like this idea of a kingdom of God and a king who truly rules wonderfully and in peace and in justice and righteousness and who loves you and who likes you, come, respond in faith. He was glad to welcome you home. He is glad to come and to live within you and to begin to make you new. And this morning, to conclude, we're going to come to the table. We're going to feast on the Lord's Supper. And we're going to remember that this baby that was born would one day die. And it's his death that we proclaim. It's his resurrection that we proclaim. It's his second coming that we proclaim. So this morning, we get to taste a little bit of a a glimpse of what that heavenly feast will be, as Revelation talks about, where we will, we will not have a table that we set out, but the Lord will set out a table for us, and we will feast with him forevermore because of his love and his grace for us. So as we come this morning to the table, let's remember what God has done. Let's go and proclaim what he has done, and let's rejoice that the king and his kingdom have finally come. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning grateful for the opportunity to, um, to be in your presence, to worship you. Father, we're so thankful that you sent Jesus, that you sent Jesus to come, to die on the cross, to rise from the dead, to bring your kingdom. Father, I pray for those of us in here who are, who are believers in Jesus. Father, I pray that we would be constantly reminded of this beautiful reality, this reality that that you have created a beautiful kingdom for us to live in through your grace. Father, I pray for those of us who are not Christians. I pray that they would turn and they would, in faith, respond to this message that, that Christ has come and that Christ has died and Christ has risen and Christ has inaugurated the good kingdom and that they could become citizens. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.